welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with John Peat. John Peat is the political and Brexit editor of The Economist and was for many years the Europe editor of The Economist. So we're going to try, John, and cover both sides of the discussion on Brexit, uh, if we can. So let's start, first of all, by not asking you to go through all the, the detail of all the shenanigans in the House of Commons recently and in, in the next couple of weeks. But from your point of view, what do you think is the most likely outcome in the next few weeks? As, as of now, I find it difficult to uh, imagine a deal being done at the European Council on 17th of, of October, uh, because I think the two sides are too far apart, um, with the British side still demanding basically a wholesale ditching of the Irish backstop um, and Michel Barnier demanding more or less you know, either that or something very equivalent to it. So I don't think we'll get a deal and I think the question then becomes quite quickly, can we have an extension or will Britain under Boris Johnson desperately try to drop out without a deal on the 31st of October and my money is on an extension which would be embarrassing for him. But he says hasn't he, quite um, categorically in no way would he ask for an extension. He has said that, and he clearly thinks that's the right way to bargain with the EU. But I, I can envisage a scenario where he says, that was my policy, and I tried my hardest to do it, but I was prevented by MPs, by the EU, by judges, the establishment, and I've been forced to ask an extension. And he then will look ahead to an election in which he runs on the basis that I represent the people against the establishment who are trying to stop us leaving the EU and hope to win a majority. So he will say when he asks for the extension, I will use that time period to hold an election. Otherwise, E27 would say no, or there has to be an election or a referendum to justify yet another extension. I think they're looking for a democratic event of right. some kind. I don't know how long the extension will be. That's up to the European Council. Uh, it could be four months. It could be even a bit longer. But I think they would expect not just further negotiation. They would want some kind of democratic event. Uh, and I, I think the most likely one is indeed an election. Whether Boris Johnson wins a majority in that election, I think is very much an uncertainty. But he might. Do you have any sympathy with the argument articulated by people like Tony Blair and many, many others that actually what we need to have rather than an election is actually a referendum? Because to make it clear, we got into this mess through a referendum, we only can get out of this mess through another referendum. I do have some sympathy for that argument. Um, as a sort of matter of principle, yeah. I think you can only overturn one referendum by having another. And I think the problem with elections, as we saw indeed with Theresa May's election in May 2017, is they quickly become about other things. Right. You know, do people, what, do, what, what do people in Northern constituencies think of Boris Johnson? How does London rate him? Do they think the Conservatives are in a mess? What do they think of Jeremy Corbyn? A referendum would have the benefit of being a clear-cut decision. Do we really want to leave the European Union or not? So I do have some sympathy for it, but I don't see Johnson going for a referendum. And I think without his consent and agreement, I think we're much more likely to end up with an election, which could then produce a referendum depending on who wins the election. Right. But it won't if Boris Johnson wins it. What people don't talk about, especially Remainers like me, because we can't actually countenance the idea of any kind of Brexit, but let's, for the sake of this podcast, let's do some mind game, is what happens if Brexit were to, to occur and the, the day after and thereafter. So let's assume that the UK has left the European Union whenever times go, the next few weeks, next few months, and it's day one of the post-Brexit era. I mean, first of all, question, rather basic question to you, John. How long do you think the negotiations for the, the political agreement for the future relationship, how long will those negotiations, discussions 
uh, take? A very long time, uh, and I, 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 I think this is this is this is going to become quite an important question. I mean, it obviously depends critically on whether Britain leaves with no deal or with some kind of patched-up deal. But actually, in a sense, whichever of those happens, the the idea that Boris Johnson and the Johnson team are promoting is that we'll get Brexit done and it'll be over, and we can then turn to other things. It will simply not be like that. Um, whether you leave with no deal or with a deal, you will immediately have to face a huge raft of negotiations about the future relationship with the European Union, the future trade relationship, what you do about security cooperation. Uh, and it's going to take a huge amount of time and effort because it will be one of the most complicated trade agreements that the European Union has ever done with a very close partner and potential competitor. And I think you just have to look at the relationship with Switzerland to realise that this could could take many, many years to sort out finally. So we're in for a very long period when Brexit and Brexit negotiations will continue to consume quite a lot of bandwidth on both sides of the channel. Well, we're here at this Pontignano conference, Anglo-Italian governmental conference in Helderia uh, in Siena, where many of our Italian friends have been quoting Theresa May, which was Prime Minister, and she was saying things like, we're leaving the European Union, but we're not leaving Europe. Uh, and they seem to think that's quite a, a kind of reassuring way maybe to that the UK is not actually going to shut the door or close up the drawbridge or whatever. So do you think that whatever happened, it's very difficult maybe to put ourselves in that position right now, that there will be a kind of positive spirit or even a kind of rather urgent uh, feeling on the UK side that we have to start uh, beyond the trade relationship uh, discussions, create a, a meaningful relationship all, in all different areas with the EU27? I hope so. I mean, I think that what will really influence that is whether whether Britain leaves with no deal. I think if we leave with no deal, the atmosphere is likely to be acrimonious for quite a long time. But I do think that in the end, sensible people will realise that the relationship between the UK and the European Union is, is vital for both sides. It's particularly vital in areas like security, defence, um, and so on, intelligence sharing. But it's also vital in trade terms and in economic terms because Britain will be the EU's biggest market and the EU will be Britain's biggest market. And I would hope that once we've got to that point, people do realise that we need to find a way that is mutually beneficial of organising this relationship. It will be complicated, time-consuming, but it needs to be done in, in a constructive and amicable way. The risk is that some of the really hardcore Brexiteers in Britain actually want to break links almost entirely and go off and do deals with America or the rest of the world and ignore the EU, and I think that would be a great mistake. It'll be a strange situation, won't it, whereby UK becomes a third country, uh, engaged in, as you say, these protracted and very complicated negotiations of its security or trade or whatever, uh, and at the same time, being like any other third country, trying with the United States or Norway, whatever, trying to influence events, or at least trying to find out what's going on, because in the meantime, things happen which affect the, um, the UK from a Brussels perspective. I think that's exactly right, uh, and I often tell people, point out to people that Norway has a very large um, delegation in, in Brussels, right opposite the European Commission, precisely because a third country that for whom the European Union is a very important partner, needs to invest very heavily in that relationship. And I would expect um, UCREP, the UK representation, to increase in size and there to be, you know, Brussels to become, in a way, the most important posting for, yeah. for, for, Europe, for British diplomats. Um, it's, part, in a sense, part of the price you pay. You, you, you may think, some Brexiteers may think, we can kind of break relations off and ignore the European Union, but you just can't. It's far too important and far too big. And we, will, we in Britain will have to invest hugely uh, in terms of sort of diplomats and work and effort in the relationship with the European Union. Yeah. You mentioned in the, in the event of no deal, there'd be a lot of acrimony around 
both sides for obvious reasons. But do you think, absent a, a no-deal scenario, but just we just leave in whatever terms, less severe than no-deal, that nonetheless we've, we've, the UK has lost a lot of friends or damaged many relationships that they have, very, they have to work very hard at to, to re-establish? I think, I, think, yeah, I think the relationship could be quite fraught, almost in any circumstances, right. but it would be especially fraught if, for instance, British government, the British government starts to make a fuss about the payment of money over, which they could do. Um, but I think, yes, fences have to be mended. Um, and, and I think it will be very important that both sides try and do that in as friendly a way as they possibly can, realising that it will take a long time and that any future deal will have to be ratified by most national and some sub-national parliaments. So the process of negotiating a deal and getting it ratified is going to be very cumbersome, quite painful and will require a lot of hard work and effort. People like Donald Tusk, maybe it should be our last question, uh, John have said, not just him, that it's, it's, this Brexit is a lose-lose is a, is a situation. Nobody benefits from this situation. Having said that, I just wonder whether people talk a lot about the, the impact on the UK of its departure from the EU, but relatively less the attention is uh, devoted to the impact on the EU of the departure from the UK. Um, do you pick up or do you have any views about the extent to which uh, certain member states are rather anxious and worried about the departure of the UK, and, and maybe by the same token, some member states are rather looking forward to an EU without the, the UK being present. I think there are elements of both. I mean, I think, you know, everybody worries about losing a very important security, defence and intelligence partner, and I think that's why people hope to maintain that relationship as close to what it is now as, as possible. But yes, clearly, I think you only have to look at, um, most obviously, France, which hopes to gain some benefits in the form of, for example, financial firms relocating to Paris. To some extent, Frankfurt is in the same is in the same position. And even the Netherlands, which is one of the closest friends of Britain, was was a country that badly wanted Britain to join the project from the first place, mm -hmm. is 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 happily hoovering up headquarters of firms <laughs> that no longer no, no longer want to be based based in London. So there is going to be an element of competition, but I I hope it's a friendly competition. Okay, we have to leave it there, John Pete. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.